This is Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, Andy here again. I know, I know, you're probably starting to wonder if Mike is ever coming back. And honestly, he's not even in this episode. So don't worry though, he'll be back next week. But for now, the show must go on, so you've got me. Today, Josh is talking with Wayne Lewis, founder and president of 614 Media Group. Early on in the interview, Wayne talks about how he got into media and the importance of having a voice. I mean, I really enjoyed what the media does. Having a voice, especially on newsprint, which is not so common today. You know, having a voice has always been pretty important to me. And I mean, we're not, you know, the New York Times or Mother Jones. We're entertainment magazines. But I think that's important, too, because, you know, we live in pretty noisy times and there's a lot going on and we try to distill that down to something that people can consume and hopefully get the best out of their city. And I've been doing that since even the college newspapers. Later, they talk about some of the things 614 Media Group does differently when it comes to critics and critical pieces. I'll give you a hint, they don't have any. Another thing we do very different is a lot of daily newspapers in the past and some of the past publications that are no longer with us. You know, they write reviews, restaurant reviews, critical things, a lot of critical pieces. It's something we just don't do in our magazine. It's very positive. It's designed to be that way. If we go to a restaurant and it's not good, we just don't write about you. And I think that says more than a couple negative paragraphs. We really try to keep that positive vibe. And that's really important for like the culture of our products and our company. Josh and Wayne wrap up talking about a newer partnership with Wolf's Ridge that led to 614 Lager being the number one selling beer for Wolf's Ridge in the first year of selling it. You know, we met with a, a bunch of folks and Wolf's Ridge was, we just really liked them. They self-distribute, really care about the community. They also have great food. I'm a big foodie, so I love what they do in their in their restaurants. Thought, man, this would be a great partnership. So I asked them, I, I would like it to taste kind of like this, this, and this. And their uh, head brewer, Chris, just knocked it out of the park. We've done a lot of blind taste tests. It's killing it. It's their number one selling beer after a year. We're not even turned on in all the stores yet. We've got some high hopes for this. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode and learn a lot from Josh's conversation with Wayne. It's a great episode. That's it for me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we have Wayne Lewis joining us. Wayne is the president and founder of 614 Media Group, a Central Ohio-focused media company behind magazines like 614 Magazine, Stock and Barrel, as well as Columbus Restaurant Week, Burger and Beer Week, and more. They're also partnered with Wolf's Ridge Brewing, working together on 614 Lager, which we have a couple here with us today, thanks to Wayne, and it's become their best-selling beer in just one year. The company was founded in 1997, and their mission is and was to deliver best-in-class information, entertainment, and perspective throughout their portfolio, magazines, websites, and events. Excited to have Wayne on the show today to talk about his story, the story 614 Media Group, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Wayne. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for bearing with me on the whole setup process. You're one of the few guests that has to watch me do this instead of Mike, so I appreciate your patience. <laughs> no worries. What's your day been like today? You know, what does a typical day look like for you? Is one of the places we like to start? Wow, today I installed some blinds in my house, worked in the garden. <laughs> it was not an office day. <laughs> took advantage of the really nice weather, but I'm at the stage now in my career where I've got an incredible team that runs the business day to day for me now. And I poke my head in whenever guidance is needed or requested and that sort of thing. And kind of think about the tomorrow vision of the company and, you know, let the great team I have run it day to day and they do an amazing job. Yeah. You picked a bad day to do yard work. It's like 95 degrees outside. And <laughs> it was worse yesterday. Yeah. It's been a hot couple of weeks. Take me back to maybe a little bit of your background. And some people start as early as childhood and where they grew up. Our listenership and Mike and I in particular is really interested in knowing the roots of our guests before we start to jump into their story. Sure. So, in the intro, you mentioned the company started in 1997. That was not here in Columbus. I'm originally from upstate New York, Rochester, and went to school there for a couple of years. 
And then I transferred to LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And it was there that I started my first business. It was a college newspaper called Tiger Weekly. A funny story, I was very involved in, you know, student government and those sorts of things there. And I was misquoted in the school's newspaper and they wouldn't retract it. So I said, well, blank you guys, I'm going to start my own. Now I had no newspaper experience. I had some sales background from before college because I went a little later. Started up the paper and it became a huge success and slowly hired people and had that business for 20 years until I sold it a few years ago. So that's what got me started in the whole newspaper business. That was not the game plan (laughs) for my education and my career. But I think sometimes you just find yourself in a place that uh, you enjoy and it just kind of grabs hold of you. And so why LSU? I had always kind of been fascinated with the South. I played baseball in junior college in New York, had fantasies of walking on LSU's baseball team, which had just won the national championship. Of course, that wasn't to be. So I thought it would be a great adventure for a couple of years. And it turns out I lived there for eight years. And then uh, how I got to Ohio is also interesting. My ex is from here and I met her at LSU. She was an athlete there and came back here, got married and decided that, my gosh, I can just start the same type of newspaper at Ohio State that I did at LSU. And that's how I got started in this market here with um, You Weekly was the name of the weekly paper back in the day. And that was 2005, a long time ago. And was your vision when you started it and started to see traction to build kind of this success around media? Or was it just to have a lifestyle and kind of fund what you were doing? Was your passion in building businesses at that time? I mean, I really enjoyed what the media does. I mean, having a voice, especially on newsprint, which is not so common today, but of course, back then, you know, uh, there were a lot more newspapers and publications out there. You know, having a voice has always been pretty important to me. And I mean, we're not, you know, the New York Times or Mother Jones, we're entertainment magazines. But I think that's important too, because, you know, we live in pretty noisy times and there's a lot going on and we try to distill that down to something that people can consume and hopefully get the best out of their city. And I've been doing that since even the college newspapers. Back when I started the Ohio State one, we also had one in Kentucky for a while, sold that and had one for a while in Austin, Texas. So there was this kind of thought of starting college newspapers, private college newspapers around the country. And then we did that for a while. 2007, 2008 happened, the recession, and then uh, those plans were put on hold. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting approach to go to market and build your business. Now you look at some pretty successful companies that have centered themselves around that ecosystem of a college campus. And then as you go on in your life, you carry those roots of where you spent your attention and your time or where you ate or where you like to go and get snacks like insomnia cookies. I believe Canes has a similar story. And so you centered around this whole college theme. And then what did you figure out in the beginning? Like I'm assuming it was a point where it was just you. And then at some point you realized, okay, this is working and why is it working? And how did you start to build a team? Sure. That's a great question because I get asked all the time, you know, I didn't have any background in media. I think I'd taken one journalism class. I was a poli-sci major. How did you do that with no background in it? And I think thinking back on it, it was really my greatest strength because I didn't have any preconceived notions about how the business needed to be run or just the structure it had to take, you know, hiring a bunch of people and whatnot. So because of that, actually, we were probably the first full color college newspaper in the country back in 1997. It was all black and white back then. And that was our kind of competitive advantage. I mean, we sold ads in modular ad sizes instead of the antiquated column inch system, which was around and hired freelancers instead of full-time people when I started to build. So we just built this really flexible, nimble, lean kind of thing. And with a lot of young people, I mean, I was one of them and giving opportunities 
to people in school and then hiring, gosh, we've hired hundreds and hundreds of people right out of school with their first jobs. Yeah. I mean, that was really an advantage. And it's funny because I've owned other businesses where I didn't have a background and it didn't work out. So I go, huh, maybe I just got lucky there. I'm not sure. But, you know, I'm not someone who's really ever played by the rules. If you talk to people who know me, I definitely like to break them and build things from scratch. Six and four is a great example. I mean, when we started the work for it in 2009, we had to build a distribution network from scratch. We didn't use a private company or any of that. And, you know, we built like 500 locations right off the bat. And that's a lot of hard work. I just believe in just have a vision and execute and do the work because everybody's got ideas, but it's really all about execution. And that's really just all about effort. And who were some of those first few employees? Was it down at LSU or when you came back up here? Yeah. So at LSU, when I started, it was, I mean, my gosh, I wrote stories. I taught myself a page maker at the time. It was a design program and laid it out and I delivered them at 5 a.m. I mean, I was also in school full time. So definitely got my hustle on for sure back then. And then slowly I started to hire people to do the things that I disliked the most, which was distribution at 5 a.m. And then, you know, some of the things I wasn't as good at. So just went from one and two and three. And, you know, after about a year, we probably had, you know, 10 freelancers and whatnot. And then when I left after eight years, we had a full-time general manager and a sales team and full-time editorial staff and all that. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Did you sell that company when you came back to Columbus? Well, no, no, no. I actually owned that company for about 20, 21 years. I sold that a few years ago to a former general manager of mine. And it just continued to grow over time. Yeah. I mean, it turned out we grew away from being just a campus newspaper and kind of became what the, say, the Alive used to be, you know, an alt-weekly for the city. We were like a million dollar a year business, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for a college newspaper, it was a lot you know, 56 page issues like every week. And that's just a lot. And so for us to grow from there, we had to get away from campus. So did that, you know, that took some bumps to get there. Whenever you kind of pivot from something, especially something that's working is risky, but I'm not afraid to take risks. And talk a little bit about that pivot, because I think that's an interesting point in any entrepreneur's journey is trying to innovate and build new concepts. And initially, sometimes you get crickets from the market and then you're trying to think, is it a dumb idea? Did it work? So as you went through those iterations, were there periods like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so much of the world is not comfortable with change. That goes with people, institutions, marketing departments, readers, you name it. But if you have a vision and it's valid and you stick to it, you will have success. But not every vision is valid. I mean, we've had products that we made that didn't work out and we folded. And we don't mind talking about those either with new employees and such, because, you know, I really believe the fail forward fast mantra that's kind of came out of Silicon Valley, you know, a decade ago. You have to be willing to take chances and risk, especially in today's market, because being static is pretty much a death sentence, I think. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Media is just such an interesting business as it is. Like before social media came along, I think I would have looked at it and said, I don't understand the value of media at all. And now I see it as one of the most powerful businesses possibly in the world. Like if you can grasp people's attention, you have everything, right? It's so hard though to get people's attention, especially as you talk about rolling out these new products and things. So as you left and you came back to Columbus, how did you go about starting things here and figure out what were the right products and how to gather those people's attention? Sure. So, you know, Ohio State had the lantern. All schools have their 
you know, laboratory school newspaper. And they're typically not really commercially minded. They don't have sales staffs and marketing programs and such. It's really for the experience of the students to get published and whatnot. So when I came here, I saw an opportunity. Obviously, Ohio State in 2005 was very different than it is today. This was, I think, right as South Campus Gateway was starting to be built. And that whole stretch on High Street Lane, it was all mom and pop businesses, which is really the bread and butter for a local media product. And so we did very, very well right out the gate. That business did well for a while. But then what we saw started to happen was these things. Cue the cell phone for people who can't see. People used to walk out of a classroom and we had a rack right there and they would grab it or they're going in a class, they're waiting, they'd grab it. But once cell phones became really mainstream and then Facebook, I think was what, 2009, something like that when Facebook started around there, we started to have to compete for people's attention spans. And that became very, very difficult, right? And so we just had to work harder and do a lot of events and whatnot and become more of an entertainment brand and not just a media company. You know, we'd make digital products and whatnot, but they could never compete with the sexiness of Facebook that was new and all the message boards and the way that people communicated. So we went to Glossy for a while to try to ramp it up. And finally, that publication lasted all the way up until COVID. And then when they shut the campus down, that was kind of the end. But in honesty, that product was going by the wayside because that audience just doesn't consume printed products in that environment at the school environment. Now at home, sure, people will sit on the couch and read books and read magazines and whatnot. But when people are mobile and moving around, the phone's 99.9%. How did you start to evolve outside of just that campus product and publication? So had the campus product for a few years and had wanted to take the next step here. I thought Columbus was just such a cool place. And it was really, you could just feel that something was going to happen in Columbus back then. You could just feel it Really wanted to do something citywide, something in the entertainment space. And uh, but there were already two other, pub- there were like, there was the other paper, there was the Alive, those two weeklies. There were several monthly glossies and they're battling it out. And long story short, two of them went at each other, knocked each other out of the game. That's our moment right there. So we took a year to work on this, to plan this, to build the distribution network, to build a, a mock issue that we could, you know, send salespeople out a year in advance of that real thing and really, really do it the right way. And it was an immediate hit. It was an immediate hit, did well. And we started Restaurant Week our first year because as a monthly publication, you need other things than just the paper product because every month is a long way away. So you need to do events, you need to have social media, you need to do all those things. And fortunately, No one was doing a restaurant week when we were there. So fortunate times. Obviously, restaurant weeks are done in big cities all over the place. We started that and that was just great. And yeah, it's just kind of really taken off from there. And uh, But we've changed a lot since then. I mean, obviously we have our magazines, but our digital stuff is huge. A lot of people listening to this will probably get our daily email, 614 Now, goes out to 90,000 people a day with a 40% open rate. And so it's the largest media email in the market by far. So our team's done an incredible job growing that. And obviously our website and our social media of hundreds of thousands of followers. So it's great when you have great, young, enthusiastic people working for you because they can help see trends that as you get older as a business owner, you just aren't able to spot as well. Very fortunate, great people. One of the things I get worried about is, is as I stop becoming a customer of a business and I go in and try to create that business in the same segment of myself, missing out on the opportunity of going through the experience and thinking that I'm innovating in the appropriate way. But then you kind of, you know, you get this perspective of not actually being on the outside is what I'm saying makes sense. And then, so 
for example, if you go through and you go to a, a giant eagle and you walk the whole store as opposed to managing that giant eagle, and if you stop walking through and going to your own store anymore, you start to lose the perspective, okay, what actually does work and how do I consume content? And so over the years, as you've grown the company, have you ever had to take a step back or how have you taken a step back? Obviously, you've been successful with the additional products you've put out to say, I understand how people consume content. I know what product we should put out next. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, From very, very early on, back in the college newspaper even, I insisted on getting feedback. I insisted on having a feedback mechanism to know whether or not people were actually picking up the magazines. We were literally the only ones, this is even back in college, and we do it today, we count all of our returns at every location. We put them in a computer program. We understand what covers work, which covers don't, uh, the seasonality trends of pickup rates based on the weather. I mean, we know all this stuff really well. So having that feedback mechanism tells you whether or not your consumers are digging what you're putting out, right? And on the digital side, it's of course very easy because you have all the built-in metrics you know, we know when our emails are doing well, when our stories are clicking and we know when they're not. So those feedback mechanisms now actually, frankly, make it a lot easier if you're paying attention. Um, and for us, that's everything because interesting, we went through a period during COVID when there were, was no entertainment news. There was nothing. We still put out a magazine, believe it or not, but our daily email was consumed with, you know, the COVID response. And I mean, I was helping drafting some of it even and uh, would watch the governor's two, two o'clock press conferences every day to get the latest stuff in there. And honestly, our audience, the click-through rates were a lot lower. The open rates were a lot lower. They just didn't tune into us for that type of stuff. And so finally, when the city opened back up, entertainment opened back up, we opened back up with it, which is really, really great. But we learned something in that. And that's, uh, you really have to stay true to your audience. And at that point, we probably didn't have much choice but to pivot a little bit on the news side, but it's not us. And that's why we just don't do hard news to this day. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's not, it's not so much a negative thing of, you know, I don't, I don't care about 614 anymore. It's my brain doesn't resonate this brand with the news that I'm looking for at this moment. And so as the city opened up, you guys were able to get that persona back and start gathering that interest again. Yeah. I mean, you know, another thing we do very different is a lot of daily newspapers in the past and some of the, you know, past publications that are no longer with us. You know, they write reviews, restaurant reviews, critical things, a lot of critical pieces. It's something we just don't do. We don't write critical stuff in our magazine. It's very positive. It's designed to be that way. I mean, look, if we go to a restaurant and it's not good, we just don't write about you. And I think that says more than a couple, you know, maybe negative paragraphs in a story. So, um, we, we really try to keep that positive vibe. And that's really important for like the culture of our products and our company. If I don't hear about conquering Columbus in the magazine, I'll know I messed up here in this interview. <laughs> uh, so talk a little bit about the, the Wolf's, Wolf's Ridge partnership and how that came about. Yeah. So as a media company, I mean, it's no, no secret that the media industry has been, well, I don't know, let's call it transitioning is a kind way to put it, uh, probably over the last decade. I mean, if you just look back, at what technology did to, you know, the daily newspapers, especially, you know, Craigslist came around and took away their classifieds, right? Monster.com came away and took away their help wanted ads. The online automotive technology in search took away their automotive classifieds. I mean, just one by one by one, the daily newspapers were, have been decimated by that. And so when most people say print's dead, I hear that still sometimes, even from friends, like, isn't print dead? Uh, What they really mean are the daily newspapers. 
because uh, obviously the news cycle is so fast and so up to the minute now that you know you can't really publish something every 24 hours and expect to be current. Uh, so digital's really taken over, but magazines still do very well. You know, um, you know the Cosmos and the GQs and the Sports Illustrated and all those. I mean, those are still you know million plus subscribers. So if you're putting out something quality to uh, a very specific audience and staying true to them. I mean, they'll respond. They really, really will. So to that end, we thought, you know, we've got to get, we've got to do something. What's next, right? We've got restaurant week and pizza and beer weeks. I can't have any more food weeks. We've got, I'm just not going to do any more food weeks. But we wanted to take our brand and and pivot, uh, not so much pivot rather, but extend it into another area. And I thought, well, what a perfect idea. How about beer, right? So I think we had 44, 45 breweries right here in, in, in and around Columbus. So we sat down with a whole bunch of them. Uh, I snagged the trademark very fortuitously, got the federal trademark for the beer. And so, because it, obviously it's a great name, kind of like 312 out of Chicago, right? I mean, this is not uh, the first um, area code beer to be uh, in existence. So, but we, you know, we met with a, a bunch of folks and Wolfridge was, we just really liked them. They self-distribute. Um, they're really really a uh, part of the community, uh, really care about the community. They also have great food. I'm a big foodie, so I love what they do in their in their restaurants. So I thought, man, this would be a great partnership. So I, I asked them, I, I would like it to taste kind of like this, this, and this. And, and their uh, head brewer, Chris, just knocked it out of the park. I mean, you haven't had one yet, because I know you have work to do later, but uh, it really is a fantastic beer. We've done a lot of blind taste tests. It's, it's killing it. It's their number one selling beer after a year or not even turned on in all the stores yet. We've got some high hopes for this. And it's, it's just exciting because it's just another way that our brand can help our audience have a good time. Yeah, it really aligns with with the overall brand position that you guys have taken and built that you were speaking about. Is it supposed to be closer to a, oh, it is a lager. Okay, it says right on the side. It's a light Midwestern lager. But what, what else would you compare it to? Is there anything to compare it to? The interesting thing is it's a craft beer, yes, because it's made at a craft brewery. We don't market it as a craft beer. We really want to compete in the domestic space. It's very affordable. It's $8.99 a six pack versus everything else is $10.99, $11.99 now on the craft side. So we're very close to the Mick Ultra, the Bud Lights, and, and those sorts of beers. And we're like, look, you know, IPAs are great. All the super creative things that the brewers locally come up with, really awesome. You drink one or two, maybe three we want to create a beer that you might drink a little bit more of. So that's why we wanted into that lager space. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of an all day, all day sort of drinker. So. And I haven't seen a lot of people innovate inside of that space, right? It's really enticing to go after the stouts and, and some of the uh, IPAs and things like that. But in terms of the higher consumption and the, the lighter beers, they've just kind of, it seems like the market stepped back and said, oh, well, the cores has that taken care of and everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there definitely has been a kind of a market or industry-wide surrender, if you will, a little bit to the big guys because they've become so consolidated now. You know, how can, how can you beat them? But the fact is, you know, our consumers for sure have proven time and time again that they want to buy local. I mean, this is in our surveys. This is, um, you know, when we're launching new products, they want to buy local. So we think this is a great local option for a light beer drinker. Like, you don't have to drink. Nothing against Budweiser. Budweiser's a big employer here and an important part of the community. And before six and four, I drank Bud. So, uh, but we think there's space for something like this. And so far the consumers are saying that they agree. And that self-distribution is huge. It's like in, in that ecosystem of food and beverage and any CPG product, 
the distributors have all the power. And so if you guys are able to sidestep that, and it sounds like a phenomenal partnership that's working well. Uh, the point you made earlier too about confusing, like, I mean, I see magazines as no different than a, another business, right? You solve a problem for people, quote unquote. And so confusing the problem with the medium and people saying print's dead, some problems are dead, it seems like, but not print as a whole, right? We still find our attention in those different areas. And what I think is a interesting model that I've seen some technology companies play lately is starting up publications of their own and distributing them to their market segment so they can bypass having to pay someone else and gather the attention on their own. Have you looked at all in your uh, different entrepreneurial endeavors in terms of doing like consulting or working from that perspective, or is everything just focused on the 614 brand and continuing to grow those products? So we currently do custom publishing. So we have an arm of the company that's called 614 Creative. And in that we do um, custom publishing. So we do guides for some of the cities, put those together for them from like, I think, Gahanna and Westerville. We do some things for Dublin. And so uh, we're doing that. We've got a full-time videographer uh, on staff who does a great job producing our Tasting Columbus, kind of our own TV show. Uh, we've got a local host, Matt Teagarden. He's super funny and amazing, does an incredible job. And we go around to different restaurants. And uh, so, yeah, we're making video content. Uh, we don't do podcasts. It's one thing we don't have experience on. Uh, but cu the custom publishing and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, that's definitely uh, going to be a growing part of our business, um, especially the video work. You know, we live in a content-driven world, and uh, for you to stay relevant, you need lots of content. Unfortunately, the content's very expensive, especially video content. So we're we're trying to come up with some ways that we can produce some uh, very, very cost-effective, very, very um, um, condensed, bite-sized video content that businesses can use on their social media and on their websites and stuff. And one interesting, interesting thing, I just got my drone license. So we're going to start, uh, uh, and we're going to start doing some actual commercial drone work, uh, which is really pretty cool. I'm fascinated by that stuff. I yeah, guess. it's super cool. And you see some of the shots on Instagram of people who've done some flowers of the city. And oh yeah. You can get some cool stuff. And then there areas of Columbus that I mean, I've lived here for however, 11 years, whatever it is, and I didn't even know existed that we're finding through uh, hitting those different perspectives, which is really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about where things are at today and what the goals are for the future. Wow, the future. So every time we get a new intern class in the office, I sit down with them and kind of give them, here's where, we, here's where we've been and here's our products and, and I let them ask questions. And the first question I always get because I never cover it on purpose is, well, what's the future going to be like, right? What's your next product? And I always tell them, I have no idea. And I'm just trying to be intellectually honest because the reality is that in the industry that we're in, it's changing so fast that to predict where it's going to be in five years, I, I don't think anybody could really do that with any certainty. Um, it's almost like watching the crypto market now. Where is it going to be tomorrow or next? You know, it's just so fast. I'm worried about the things that we can control. Uh, so the things that we can control are having great people who, who like working with us, who really enjoy their jobs, um, making good, fun products that the community responds to um, and that our employees feel good about producing, like the magazines and the events and the beer and all these things. And because it's fun, it's, it's, it's uh, uplifting. So we can control those things somewhat, right? I can't control paper prices. Uh, look, if paper quadrupled next month, would I be able to print a magazine? No, that's just the reality. So, you know, predicting the future is really, really tough because paper has gone up by actually about 100% in the last two years. So uh, it's, I blame Amazon 
because all the paper all the paper manufacturers are switching to making cardboard products instead of paper products. That's wild. I would I would have never thought about that. And and I'm guilty as charged because Amazon does visit my house rather regularly. So yeah, the amount of boxes that I have to take out to the trash or, or recycling bin on a regular basis is mind-boggling. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So, but also our future is very, very tied to the local economy. I mean, we're an advertising-driven publication primarily. So, you know, we need a healthy local economy of small and medium-sized businesses to support us. So, again, we're not in control of the macro economy, right? Even at, at the local level, we just we just can't control it. So a little bit of being in business, I'll tell you, is flying by the seat of your pants. I mean, you try to control the things you can, but you can't get wrapped up and worried about everything because there's just a lot you can't control. You know, I mean, you ask anybody like in manufacturing, if they would have been shut down a year and a half or two years ago, they'd or three years ago, they thought you're, you're crazy, right? We've got customers, we've got contracts, and then one day you're shut down for who knows how long. So yeah, I don't really get too wrapped up in that kind of stuff, the, 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 the future stuff. Now, I think the future's kind of exciting, but I'll tell you, I'm a big believer in print. I think people are getting tired of the, the screen. I mean, the screen has just taken over our lives so completely from work to our social, in the car, you can't drive down the street anymore without someone staring at it. And there comes to a point where I think that people want an outlet and that's so that tactileness of the magazines and, and having something tangible is, I think, very uplifting and, and very different. And so I'm definitely a big believer in that in the future, that that's going to be a part of our business. So Yeah, it doesn't matter how much I try, whether it's anything from a Kindle to a cell phone to retain content the same way I do through print. And I just, I can't make it happen. And the other element of it that kind of uh, continues to push me back towards paper-based things is that I, I can't switch from that over into Instagram really quickly, right? So if I am reading something that's very dense and it's got a lot of thought-provoking content to it and I, I'm not really wrapped up in it and I constantly want to turn away, I can't do that with a magazine or a book or something. And so it keeps me engaged for longer, which I like. It's a little bit peaceful. Yeah, and, and it's definitely from a, you know, a consumer marketing standpoint, you know, all the research shows that print magazines, advertising is far, far has higher recollection and memorability versus uh, they really haven't figured out digital advertising, uh, really. Um, the day of the banner, you know, the banner ads back in the day, they'd be flashing and popping and zooming and whizzing by you. You know, those are pretty much over now. The, the phones have cut out all the retargeting and tracking. And so we've got a good product that it gives you an intimate experience, you know, and the consumer is kind of really in control of the pace versus having things pushed at them in that digital sphere. So it's it's cool. Look, we have digital products too, but we're very mindful about how much advertising we put in and the actual nature of it and, and what does it look and feel like. So we're trying to be very, very mindful of that as well because we do play in that sphere too. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, people like to be informed and they want to know what's new and they want to know, you know where to go and what to see. And that's what we deliver regardless of the platform. And in a space where things are changing so rapidly uh, and so often, how do you handle fostering innovation inside of the company as a leader? Like, how do you handle new ideas and keeping the team excited, but still keeping a focus, not getting distracted? So we, we definitely take chances where we can. I mean, some of our products, you know, in, in a magazine, there's not too, we're not going to change the size of the magazine radically because that just has such crazy manufacturing implications. So some things you can't really do much with. You can tinker around the edges. Uh, but when it comes to online stuff, you know, we're constantly doing new things and everybody has input. One of the things I'm tasked with is to think about the future. 
um, a little bit more so than, than say everybody else. But that said, you know, we've got people in house that are uh, kicking off our new um, our online store. We're going to be, you know, selling things online. We have this huge audience and now monetizing them and in that way by providing some some goods and services that you can only get through us. So we're, we're working on that kind of stuff as well. That's a huge, huge um, untapped area for us, for sure. But, um, you know, the interesting thing is that, like we do have a lot of younger employees, very young company. And I think it's just like they intrinsically think about the future. I think they're just were raised in a world that was always so forward looking. What's next? What's new? What's the next update on my phone? What's, you know, what's the next iOS? And like, they're always looking towards the future. So I, I think that's just kind of native of having a young culture and a young company. Hey, everybody, Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies. Companies, it grows a highly adaptive workforce and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. Would you have any advice in particular for our listenership across Columbus, primarily Central Ohio? 24 to 45 year old young professionals. Don't text and drive. That's good advice. <laughs> oh, I don't think I'm qualified to give advice to a, a blanket uh, demographic of people, but uh, I look, I think Columbus is doing very well for itself. And that's really because of the people that are here. I think it's a very friendly, welcoming, pretty darn civil place to live considering how, you know, we're, we're starting to get a little bit more packed in than we were, say, 10 years ago, for sure. That's changing. So just staying civil and putting your grocery carts back when you're done using them, I think will go a long way. And then the last question we always wrap up with and center on the theme on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And as you hear that phrase, does it apply at all to your life and career? And, and what do you think of when you hear it? Uh, I love the phrase because it forces you to get out of your comfort zone and, you know, do things that you might not even be fully confident with, but if you wait to be fully confident, you'll you'll kind of never get there. It's kind of almost like a little the, the chicken and the egg dilemma a little bit. And sometimes you just have to go out and just like try things, do things and fail. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think a lot of the younger folks in particular actually do have this fear of failure, which is a little bit surprising to me because they also grew up in this, you know, Silicon Valley age that was very, very much pushing the mantra of like, fail, pivot, fail, pivot, you know? Um, and, and I don't know that that's really caught on yet because I, I, you know, we, you definitely need to push people, I feel like, to get them to come out of their comfort zones. And I, I don't know what the source of that is, but um, I think, look, the, the more chances you take in life within, you know, within, <laughs> within reason, it, it'll pay benefits. Like, even if, even if you don't, uh, succeed right away at what you're doing. You might learn another lesson that applies to something else you do five years later, you know? So, I mean, Lord knows I've made plenty of mistakes in business 
and and life, I'm sure. And um, all of those go to kind of enforce or uh, uh, reinforce your your experience kind of database, like how you how you navigate the future is based on what you've done in the past because it's your context, right? And so, yeah, I think um, conquering your fears is, is definitely probably the biggest lesson I would try to give even my own kid, for sure. Yeah, I think it's a powerful message and perspective. I think what's challenging about today's times, at least from my perspective, is if you look back 30, 40 years ago, the billionaires in this world were often built through very difficult, challenging businesses over the course of 30, 40, 50 plus years. And so now you hear about somebody five years younger than you that just became a Bitcoin billionaire (laughs) overseas. And so you think, I'm going to fail trying this. And you start to doubt yourself. And so that's what we like to really call out during the episodes too with some of our entrepreneurs is, you know, were there hardships and things? So I appreciate you spending some time being open and, and honest about the fact that things have not always been extremely successful. You know, you've had things where you've tried to innovate and they, and they didn't work out. Yeah, absolutely. It, and, you know, kind of to your point, it makes me think about paying your dues. And I, and I know that there's a lot of uh, get rich quick businesses that just exist today, you know, from, you know, social media stars to YouTube uh, folks who get like, you know, instant fame. Uh, but most of them worked a long time at it. Like, I know, like even, you know, Joe Rogan did a podcast for an awful long time before he became at the pinnacle, right, of that business. Um, that the And whole, he's still not as big as Conquering Columbus yet, which is crazy. No. <laughs> There's still time. There's still time. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in that 10,000 hour rule, Malcolm Gladwell, right? Um, that you just, you have to put in the time to really get good at your craft. And I think- uh, the younger generation a little bit, and this is not a dig on the younger generation. I think they have a lot going for them, but that's one area I think that as a business owner, I've seen, they tend to want it a little faster than is realistic, especially in a, in a business setting, right? Uh, where they're not entrepreneurs in charge of their own destiny. They're working in a company in a hierarchy for other people and with other people. And there's this team at play and, you know, uh, climbing the ladder in that environment takes longer, right? And so, and it's not for everybody, just like entrepreneurship's not for everybody. But, you know, paying your dues, not just to pay your dues, but to actually learn your craft and be really, really good at it. Um, that's something I would love to see preached a lot harder, maybe in, in like high school and college. Uh, so the expectations for the real world are not quite as shocking <laughs> when you get out there, but that's just, this perspective from, you know, an old millennial. Well, Wayne, thanks for joining us. I think it's a great message, a great place to wrap up the episode. And it was exciting to hear about everything that has gone out through your career and what you guys got going on today and the goals for the future. For So thanks again for jumping on. My pleasure. Anytime. Talk to you guys next week.